Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Just the Good Stuff. This is your host, Rachel Mansfield. And while I may currently be in newborn land, we have our next podcast guest lined up, Jason Karp. Jason is the co-founder and CEO of Human Co. and one of the co-founders of Hue Kitchen, which, as you know, is forever and always my go-to brand. Jason is the person you want to learn from, especially if you're looking to start your own brand or in the process of getting a brand off the ground, or you want to hear more about investing in the industry and where we are headed next. We've known Jason for a few years now. He's who we actually met with when we first invested in Hue a few years ago, and I always love catching up with him. In this episode, you'll hear all about the backstory of Hue and the evolution of Human Co., his latest venture. Human Co. is a mission-driven private holding company that invests in and builds brands focused on healthier living and sustainability. They're the people behind Snow Days, and then they also acquired Cosmic Bliss and Against the Grain, the pizza, everything that they, everything that Jason is behind is just absolutely amazing. This is one of my favorite episodes that we have shared, and I cannot wait to hear what you think. Don't forget to tag both me and Jason when you're listening and let us know what you think of this episode. And if you have a hot second, please rate and review the podcast over on iTunes. We'll be back in a couple of Tuesdays with another new episode. So on today's episode, we have Jason Karp. He is the co-founder of Hugh Kitchen and now the co-founder of Human Co. And CEO. And CEO. So we will let Jason uh, introduce himself. Well, hi, guys. Thanks for having me. I've kind of lived two lives for the last 24 years. I started my career in finance uh, straight out of college. And in my first uh, couple of years of working, I was doing the kind of New York City work hard, play hard thing as a young, aspiring overachiever. And in my second and third year of work, which was uh, 99, 2000, 2001 timeframe, I got really sick. And I had a bunch of different uh, seemingly disconnected autoimmune diseases. Uh, but as we all know, they're, they're connected. And what really was kind of the straw that broke the camel's back for me was I was uh, diagnosed with a degenerative eye disease where I was going blind at the age of 23. And um, they... Multiple ophthalmologists told me what I had was was incurable. I had to put my name on a degenerate on a corneal transplant list because it's a degenerative disease that just gets worse over time. And uh, I I fell into a pretty dark depression because my health was so terrible. And I actually always thought I was healthy. I I was an athlete. For most of my life, I was a competitive athlete uh, in college. Um, I was a Division One athlete, and um, I always thought I was this sort of pillar of health. But I didn't know a lot about uh, kind of modern lifestyle issues. And part of my personality is that I, I tend to be a bit of a maverick, and I uh, refuse to sort of accept this diagnosis. And I started learning and going down rabbit holes with uh, functional medicine doctors, which back then they weren't even called that. But there were a few pioneers in the space. Dr. Andrew Weil, who was kind of the OG integrative doctor, um, also the founder of True Food Kitchen, which we can get into. Dr. Mark Hyman, another one. Mark Sisson was another kind of early pioneer in kind of the paleo movement. And so there were some people back then that we're starting to have conversations about the connection between 
food, lifestyle, and illness um, and health. And uh, long story short, I started experimenting with some, uh, at the time, what seemed crazy, which was giving up a lot of foods that I loved. I was uh, chronically sleep deprived. And so I had to teach myself how to sleep again. Because of my workaholism, I wasn't, you know, taking care of myself in terms of exercise. And, and so, but primarily through giving up a lot of foods that I loved, caffeine, alcohol, processed food, gluten, refined sugar, those kind of things, my diseases went in reverse and my vision came back. And as you can see today, I'm, this is 22 years later, I am not blind. And I was the first case from at least the ophthalmologists that I saw in New York City, they said they'd never seen anyone reverse the disease. And that really taught me how misinformed we all are as kind of modern humans and citizens about the connection between our modern lifestyle and health. And, and a lot of my research since then, starting then, and then going up until now, was based around human evolution and was based around how we evolved as, as humans. And I'll, we can get into that. But many years later, and to bring it full circle in terms of my intro, many years later, my brother-in-law, Jordan Brown, and my wife, Jessica, we were talking about a lot of these things. And I had to live a much more restricted kind of diet after I cured myself. And Jordan, who didn't have any of my issues, started reading a lot of the same books that inspired me. And he noticed that when he started doing this in terms of cleaner eating, uh, healthier lifestyle, really understanding kind of the connection to evolution, he started noticing how much better he felt and he looked and he performed and how, better he, how much better he slept. Uh, he came to me one day. I was still at a hedge fund at the time and he was in real estate. And he said, why isn't there a place like this, you know, where we can eat basically these principles? Like there's nowhere like what we're doing, which was basically paleo inspired. And paleo, uh, you know, for, for your uh, listeners is obviously rooted in the basis of human evolution uh, and sort of how we have used to be hunter gatherers. And, uh, I, you know, and I said, you're right. I said, but I don't like restaurants. And he, he convinced me to open up the first of its kind, a restaurant that was basically ultra clean in New York City. And we named it Hugh Kitchen. Uh, Hugh stands for human. A lot of people call it who, but it's, it's Hugh. And our slogan was get back to human. Still is get back to human um, because we believe people don't live the way humans have evolved and, and that optimal health and optimal mental health is related to getting back to the way humans used to be. We can go into Hugh. I, I'm sure some of your listeners know about it at this point because you, you regularly I talk think about it. everyone knows about Hugh. <laughs> but uh, as Hugh grew and grew, and it was a family business, Jordan, myself, and Jessica, we were the, the three founders. Uh, we had no outside investors for many years because... Uh, not because we were greedy, but because we we were so kind of fanatical about what not to do. And because I came from the world of investors, I never wanted to have that conversation where people would say, why don't you just substitute in, you know, this shittier ingredient and, and the customers won't notice it and we'll make more profit margin. This was really a very clear passion and mission project for our family. And we wanted to really show the world that you could do really delicious, 
healthy foods um, without compromising. And uh, we could also spend time on how it turned into a chocolate company. We can come back to that. But as Hugh got bigger and bigger, I was still running a hedge fund, which was my day job. And I realized also that a lot of the foods that I grew up on that people think of as comfort foods and people think of as, as really delicious, most of those foods were really junky in terms of the ingredient quality. And I also knew because I was sort of like a, an armchair nutritionist, I had to train myself very heavily in nutrition. And I'm now on the board of the Tufts Nutrition School, which is the top nutrition school in the country. But I, I, I had to train myself and really think about uh, nutrition. And what you learn is that everybody knows that vegetables and fruit are healthier than Twinkies. 50 years later, they're still eating the Twinkie. And so for me, a lot of my passion was, well, I want to eat foods that bring people joy. I want to create foods that bring people joy. There's no coincidence that if you look at everything that I've done, it's chocolate, cookies, crackers, pizza, ice cream, which obviously don't sound healthy, but that's where a lot of the problems are. And, and that was the basis of HumanCo. And HumanCo is basically what we did with Hugh. And this was before we sold Hugh, by the way. But I wanted to do what we did with Hugh and other food categories. Because as a consumer with two children, and as someone who struggles all the time with what I can eat and what I can't eat, I wanted to make sure or, or create better stuff for everybody and make it easier for people to live a healthier life because it's just so hard right now. And so that's the, the kind of long intro. I know I you, you, I love I love the intro. It was very very informative. But the I'm like having deja vu too because I had Jordan and Jessica on the podcast I think like two years ago to share the story yeah. of Hugh. And it's just so crazy to me like listening to that you guys created this restaurant before anyone gave a shit what paleo was or what gluten free was. There was no products on the market. Like when you were probably cutting out those foods there was limited options when you walked into a whole foods market on like what was actually going to taste good, but like make your body feel good. So Hugh is like one of the first to me brands that like pioneered this industry. Like when we moved to the city, I've been he pretty health conscious now since like about 23, 22. So about 10 years, I'd say at least 10 years. Yeah. And I used to walk down from my our apartment on 26th and 7th and go to Hugh and like come like carry home, like all of like the chicken fingers and like, the zucchini cheese on a bagel, like the randomest things, the focaccia bread. And it was amazing. And then, you know, that was where you first showed. And like, again, Jordan and Jessica do dive into like how you started selling the chocolate and then like grew the brand from there. But then all of a sudden, Hugh Kitchen shut down and it was like a death happened in the city. At least a death still happened. People bring that up how many times a week to uh, us on the phone? I mean, at least once a week, someone yeah. brought up the fact that the, the not restaurant's there. not there anymore. I actually yeah, I think that it just, I think that someone just leased the restaurant, like the space. I, I think Jessica told us that. Uh, it looks like it's a flower shop right now. Yeah. Which is really yeah. sad. And, but look, I mean, you've obviously seen a lot of restaurant concepts that have similarities. The problem that we've learned, and you know, I'm also, I've been a professional investor for 24 years now. It's not just the idea it's the execution of how much you really believe in this stuff. And you kind of have to be a little crazy to do it the way we did it. Because the, the profit incentive to shortcut and cheapen 
and, you know, think of things that maybe aren't so great for people. That incentive is so strong that, you know, uh, for me, like I can quickly tell when I go into another place how authentic it is by meeting the management or the founder, because it's really some it's, you have to live this way, I think, to do it the way we did it. Yeah. And to really get it. But when you guys started to come, when you started to get the idea for Hugh and then the chocolate, like, what did you think? Like, how did you think that this was going to end? Like, how did you think, what did you think was going to happen in five to 10 years? Did you imagine this like iconic exit and partnership with Mondelez coming into the future? Like, you know, you helped support your brother-in-law and your wife with this awesome idea that you all had a passion for. Like, what did you actually think was going to happen here? I never would have gotten into chocolate if I knew then what I know now. So we'll start with that. Like what? <laughs> chocolate is very difficult to do. And, and as you may remember from your, your talk with Jordan and Jessica, the chocolate was kind of an accident. And we were baking grain-free goods at the beginning when we were about to open. Grain-free muffins, cones, cookies, et cetera. No refined sugar. And our bakery, if you remember, was amazing. Yeah, um, I know. I'm like salivating. Thank and, um, and, and we needed chocolate chips because like, who doesn't like, you know, grain-free cookies with, with chocolate chips? And so we couldn't find chocolate chips that met our guardrails, which was no soy, no dairy, no refined sugar. So we had to make it ourselves. And it was a really kind of cockamamie approach to how we figured out how to make chocolate, which was not us. We hired a consultant who was a French pastry chef who helped us do it. And Jordan and I, in particular, were very involved in the iterations. And when we kind of landed on the the recipe, Jordan's idea was like, let's turn these into chocolate bars and let's sell them in the restaurant. And, you know, uh, as an investor, I always acknowledge that that packaged goods or, or, you know, anything that kind of has much smaller scale can be a better and easier business than running a gigantic restaurant. And so I was always okay with that approach, but it was kind of just like, okay, let's sell chocolate in the restaurant. And then we got a lucky break where one of our chefs, girlfriend worked at Whole Foods and he used to bring her home our chocolate bars. And she came in and said, this is the best tasting healthy chocolate I've ever had. Can we sell it at Whole Foods? And that was kind of how it turned into a CPG brand. And when that started, Jordan basically went like, and his, and his younger brother, basically went like full time on like trying to build the foundation of the CPG business because we had a general manager who ran the restaurant. We knew nothing about running a restaurant, by the way. So we hired people smarter than us who could help us. I mean, we knew we knew what we wanted on the menu. We were very good at like experimenting and tasting. And Jordan and I primarily were like the tasters. So like everything had to go through us in terms of like, is this good enough? And we always had this thing that we called the kid test. Like, would my kids eat it if they didn't know that it was healthy? And if it passes the kid test, meaning they just would say like, this is great. And then you tell them afterwards, like, oh, by the way, it's healthy. If it passes the kid test, it passed our test. And so I kind of never thought, I mean, obviously, I wouldn't have kept investing in our business if I didn't think it was going to get bigger and better. But we didn't have like a clear line of sight where we reverse engineered it and was like, in seven years, we're going to be X big and then we're going to sell it. We actually didn't even necessarily think we wanted to sell it. And we could come back to that too. But what we knew was that the world needed 
healthier products that had a standard that hadn't been done before. And we had a lot of challenges. I mean, I know it looks like it was like kind of a smooth, great outcome, but there were a lot of bumps. There were at least, I joke, there were at least five, six, seven times where I was within a day of closing the whole thing down because it was really messy, you know, and there were periods where it was really dark and it was really hard. I mean, we we did some things that nobody had ever tried or done. I mean, even the way we make our chocolate is like totally different than the way that 99.99% of global chocolate is made. And I attribute that, you know, to Jordan and his genius around chocolate making. But part of our, I think, benefit, Rachel, is that we were outsiders. And because we were outsiders, we asked a lot of like naive questions that experts would never ask. And we were able to figure some weird things out because we were outsiders. And we're like, well, why do they do it that way? Let's try it this way. That was really kind of helpful in the, in the end. What were some of your biggest challenges when you were growing here? The chocolate was, was quality control, was scaling. You know, at first it was basically made kind of by hand. You know, we found this, we found this place in Brooklyn that had a very, very small operation. It wasn't very uh, like homogenous, you know, very large CPG companies crank out very similar homogenous products, like all Oreos look the same. Mm-hmm. When yeah. you're doing very small batch stuff, it's not homogenous. Uh, so we had a lot of quality control issues in the beginning, nothing like food safety stuff, but just like, like, you know, weird batches and ones that tasted terrible and ones that tasted good. And we didn't. We had no venture money. We had because it was just us. It was just our family. So we had no like like advice on how to scale CPG. So the first couple of years was was literally, I'm sure Jordan told you this, was Jordan and his brother, like with a suitcase full of chocolate, walking from store to store like a traveling salesman and like walking into bodegas and being like, hey. Try our chocolate. And by the way, it was like $9 back then because also the cost of making that quality chocolate is really high, right? And like, you don't realize that the reason that most conventional chocolate candy, and we never thought of what we made was candy, but the reason that, that most candy is cheap is it's literally sugar. First, you know, conventional, genetically modified, cheap cane sugar wrapped with other stuff. And, and that is super cheap. And, and, you know, ours was not. I think getting our costs down was hard. I think figuring out how we could scale from this sort of tiny operation to like a little bit bigger. And that was the hardest part was we had to develop production methods that had not been done before because the way using unrefined coconut sugar is a very different process than using refined white cane sugar in terms of how you actually make the chocolate. And then there's some special kind of recipe things that we figured out that allows our dark chocolate to taste closer to milk chocolate without chemicals and without what's called alkalizing. You know, you'll see on the back of most dark chocolate, it'll say like alkalized cocoa because dark chocolate is naturally very bitter. And that means it's acidic. And the alkalization process is trying to remove the acidity. And most companies do that with chemicals. So figuring out, it's kind of like winemaking. And then as it got bigger, the hardest part, Rachel, 
was, and this is where I kind of joke, like if I knew what I know now versus then, like making chocolate has infinite variability in each step. So like, like you could get so many things a little off and it comes out wildly different. You know, how you roast the beans, how long you roast the beans, what temperature you roast the beans, how you grind the beans, right? Like which coconut sugar are you using? You know, there's something called tempering, which is basically like how you heat it up and how you allow it to cool. And our recipe is to the 10th of a, de of a degree, to the 10th. And like, and like when we switched facilities from the smaller facility to a bigger facility with, and we own the recipe and we own the ability to say like, this is exactly how you have to do it. And we have everything down to the second. It still took us like four months to replicate it. And, wow. and, you know, Jordan was really the mastermind in making sure that every time we grew, we never compromised on the taste and the quality. And then we had like some weird stuff happen along the way where like some, we switched a long time ago from a South American bean to an African bean because cacao naturally is like a sponge and it absorbs everything in the soil. And South American beans tend to be high in heavy metals, naturally. They soak up uh, anything where there's volcanic activity puts a lot of metals into the soil. And you'll notice that a lot of chocolates in California have a Prop 65 warning on them. Um, oh, wow. Yeah. So interesting. Um, and they're, they're well, by the way, they're well below the FDA limit. So they're safe. But California has these crazy rules uh, that are in many cases, a hundred times more sensitive than like the US rules. So you'll see all these products that will have these like warnings on them, like this could cause cancer. And you're like, what? Why is there a war? Like there's, they have that sign at Disneyland. And, and we saw like, that when we went to Expo in March, they were everywhere. Remember that? And you're like, yeah. why is this? So anyway, we didn't want that. And so we switched from South America to Africa where there's much less heavy metals in the soil, but it's totally natural. It's not like anyone's adding metals. It's just yeah. from the soil and they're just naturally in the beans. So that was hard. Obviously there's a family dynamic element um, <laughs> between Jessica Jordan and me. There were a lot of moments that were challenging when you work with your family, as you two know. Oh yes. Um, Any tips on working with your spouse? You know, it's amazing. Jessica and I, you know, more, more of the challenges were between Jessica and Jordan than between Jessica and me. <laughs> I think it's just about like not having an ego and, and being very transparent in communications about like what's bothering you, you yeah. know, cause like all the problems that I've witnessed in both my businesses as well as others is that people bottle things up and it, and it stews. And by the time, like by the time it's, it's stewed long enough is when you explode and you never want to let it get to that point. And so I think it's really important that you're always communicating what's bothering you real time, as opposed to like, like holding it in. And then like two months later, you're like, I, you know, like you lose it. You guys are looking it at sounds, each other on this it one. It sounds, sounds familiar. I mean, I wear my heart on my sleeve. So like when I'm pissed, you know, I'm pissed when I'm happy, you know, I'm happy, but Jordan's definitely like, you know, the bottle bottle upper who uh holds it all in and then just un un unlashes every I'm getting I'm getting better specific detail that has happened in the last six months <laughs> and 
My other important one, which I which I have said to a lot of people over the years, is I developed this principle I call water versus gasoline. That's been like one of the most helpful frameworks for resolving conflicts, which is anytime there is an issue where you feel a little, you know, aggravated and it could be uh, it could be an like an impending fight. It could be that somebody annoys you. It could be somebody says something the wrong way, whatever it is. I view that as a fire. And every person has a choice to throw water on that fire or gasoline on that fire. And most people I have learned because of their ego and their insecurity. And by the way, I used to do this. So this is how I know about this principle is throw gasoline on it. They escalate it. They want to be right. They want to win. They want to prove the other person wrong. In many cases, they want to embarrass the other person. They want to show dominance. Almost all ills that I have witnessed in relationships, business relationships, marital relationships, friendships, all come from people throwing gasoline instead of from water. And kind of having that as a as a permanent philosophy that like we will always try to resolve issues and, and there's always issues and we will not escalate and we will assume positive intent. That's another very important like related principle. So when somebody does something that's like, oh, my God, why did they do that? You know, to recognize like these are probably these are good people. It's probably stupidity and not malice. Let's <laughs> let's talk. Let's talk about it. Like so, yeah, that, that hits home. No, yeah. that's helpful. I'm always like, don't assume the worst in what I'm saying or what I'm doing. Or so the acquisition of Hugh was wild. Like when we kicked off great shit and we tell people that our first investment ever was Hugh, they look at us like we were, were geniuses. And I'm like, no, 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 no. <laughs> I was like, I came in like one of the last people in there. I was, you know, l- late to the game in my opinion. But it was iconic. And you guys have really, I would say, inspired so many brands that that's like what they hope to do in a handful of years. So can you tell us a little bit more on like things that are allowed to be spoken about on the acquisition of Hue and what made you guys choose Mondelez as your partner? Sure. There's a big difference between brand awareness and brand equity. And for as long as I can remember, even going back to high school, I was always obsessed with iconic brands. Like what makes them iconic? Like, why do you think about them? Why did they make you feel better when you buy them? You know, brands like Apple or Patagonia and, and even Whole Foods. And like, what is it about them that, that, that it speaks to like something deeper and, and, and you know, and, and I'd say one thing that we were really, really fanatical about as a family was that we would be focused on brand equity far more than brand awareness. And the brand equity is really about trust, authenticity, never compromising, not making it seem like you're just trying to grow to sell out. And what was what was nice and convenient is that like we genuinely didn't want to sell out. And and that was kind of a fluke what happened. And I can get into that because that's public information. But I think just for your listeners, that's really important because we had this window, and I can say this also as a as an investor over you know twenty four years that there have been big cycles, and I've lived through some big cycles where there's been some bad cycles, and we're starting to go into a pretty bad cycle right now, and a lot of people haven't lived through the last few bad cycles, and I have, and it gets pretty ugly in the bad cycle, 
And in the bad cycles, like strategic acquirers, they're not really there. So if you don't have a business that's a, like a real business that can survive without someone buying you, like you're going to have a problem. And I think we had this period of time in the last decade, really, where there were a bunch of high profile exits, you know, like us, like RX Bar, like Kind, you know, that were like, whoa. And I think a lot of people over extrapolated and said, oh, like, that's the game. Let's do that. Let's try to build something, even no matter how unprofitable it is, and like hope somebody shows up and buys it. And you can tell, especially you guys, that when you see a product that's not really authentic, like you kind of you kind of can feel it. You yeah, know, you kind of can feel like, oh, this is this is a company that's just trying to ride the no sugar added wave, or this is a company trying to ride the keto wave, or you know, like there's all these waves. Right. And I think the first important thing is don't get into this business to try to sell something. Get into this business because you actually love it. You actually want to create stuff that's better for people in the world. And if you do that really well, being able to monetize it is like a benefit of doing that well, as opposed to that's the, that's the goal. It's almost ironic that it's the other way around. Like, the fact that we weren't focused, we could have grown much. So for example, to put this into real, and I won't mention any other companies by name, but there were some other chocolate companies that were trying to do similar things to us that were much more focused on distribution, rapid growth, particularly in the like keto, low, low to no sugar space. And the chocolate doesn't taste nearly as good as ours. There's no like brand authenticity other than like, oh, this is a no sugar added chocolate or this is an erythritol stevia chocolate. And they like blitzed it everywhere. And there were a bunch of them. We grew much more slowly than we could have because we didn't want to go in places where we wouldn't be appreciated. We didn't want to go in places initially where like people wouldn't understand what our mission is. And certainly we didn't want to go in places where people wouldn't understand why we were much more expensive. And we weren't more expensive because we had higher profit margins. We had way lower profit margins. It was just making foods that are much healthier with organic ingredients, with better practices like fair trade, cost more. That was like a really important thing because what happened is, is that the, the people like you, Rachel, and the people like me and what I call the fanatical few, they recognized that the way we did it was was very authentic and not compromising. And, and that small group, which includes nutritionists, you know, hardcore, you know, what I call conscious consumers who read ingredient labels, they understand the difference between, you know, fair trade and not fair trade or canola oil and olive oil and those types of people, they became fanatical about you. And then they told their friends, and then those friends told their friends. And it became something that kind of took off organically without us spending a lot of money on marketing, but because we always stayed, stayed true to our North Star. And so we would find people that were like hardcore nut, like totally nuts like us. And they'd be like, oh my God, you did you just right um, in terms of like what went into it. And so that translated into sales. And, that tr and so all the big companies get data 
on how your product is doing in different channels. And they could see the health and they could see that Q was selling more bars per store per week than any other chocolate. And that was a function of the taste was great. The quality was great. And our brand promise was always there and never compromised on it. And you need all of those things. Like having a great tasting product is necessary, but not sufficient. And that's like the first thing. Like the product has to be good because people won't eat things that are gross. And it's shocking how many brands create stuff that's gross. Like it's amazing. After walking through Expo, yeah, definitely. Uh... And you're like, wow, I can't believe this even got past like like the like the first conversation. The big co- the big chocolate companies started to notice us, and they started to notice that 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 we were we were doing something that they couldn't recreate, both in terms of the brand loyalty, and also in terms of how we made our chocolate. And, and I don't want to understate the importance of that one, which is. All of the large food companies, particularly in snacks and confections, they have way too much exposure to like true junk food and not much right. exposure to things that are better for you. And they know that that's where things are going. And it's shocking, but like many of them couldn't recreate what we did. And several of them tried in terms of the taste, in terms of the quality. And that's like a, just a, an amazing revelation that like Jordan and I didn't fully realize until we kind of got in the end of the process. But we, we originally took Mondelez on as a small minority investor and a board member because we kind of hit a point where we were like, okay, if we want this to be national, Mondelez is, by the way, for your listeners, is the biggest snacking company in the world. It used to be part of Kraft. They own Cadbury. They own Oreos. They own Chips Ahoy. They own Toblerone. Second biggest chocolate company in the world. Um, you know, the, the biggest chocolate companies are Mars, Hershey, Mondelez, Lint. And uh, we wanted their help because we were like, look, you guys know how to reach a lot of people. You guys know all the games of retail and how to do that right. We've built something unique and special, but we don't know any of that stuff, or at least we don't want to learn it the hard way. And it was kind of like a great marriage, but we knew we didn't want to sell the company. And then at the beginning of COVID, which was kind of two years after Mondelez got involved, uh, one of the other largest chocolate companies, this is public information, reached out and said, hey, we see the data. You have an iconic brand. We would like to buy. And in, in finance parlance, that's called a bidding war, where you have two people that both want the same thing. And we ultimately stayed and chose Mondelez because we had seen what they were like over two years. We thought that um, they had made several acquisitions prior to us, things like Kate's Cookies, Enjoy Life, which is the allergen-free brand. They bought Perfect Bar. They really walked the talk in terms of wanting to move more in the direction of health and wellness. And it was super important for me, Jessica, and Jordan that they would honor our legacy but what happened was, was because we had outside investors, you know, we did not want to sell when it happened, which is still a bittersweet thing for all of us. But it got to a, a, a price where we would be fiduciarily irresponsible if we didn't sell it to our investors like you. And we made sure, and, and you know, they were great about this in the process. We made sure that the guardrails of Hugh would be honored forever. 
and it's in the contract. And that's an important thing. And we spent a lot of extra time on this, where like all the things that are on the front of the Hue bar, like 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 all the all the no's that are here, yeah. right? They can't violate those ever. I think, and um, that's like really important to us for our legacy. And it's actually really important to them. And it showed how good they are as stewards because they know that if they do that, it's going to ruin what made Hugh special. So that was kind of how that happened. That's really great to hear because I feel like a lot of those big food conglomerates have been getting like somewhat bad press with like, you know, pushing all these like more junk food products. But it is good to hear that they are actually going to keep Hugh as it was built. Well, I think there's a lot of negative connotation. Like Hue is, you know, one of a handful of brands that have, are very near and dear to my heart that were acquired since I started consuming them. Perfect Bar, Garn of Life. And every single time it happens, the floodgates like open and people are like, oh, are you still going to eat it? Even though like so-and-so is behind it or like Nestle is behind Garn of Life. How does that work? Or like is Mondelez going to change everything about Hue? And I think something that's important for the listeners to to know and to learn is that you know, you have so much like huge, huge chocolates. Like your, it was like your baby. Like you're not just gonna like give your baby to anybody and like let them raise it. Like I, brands are very strategic about the partners that they bring on. And I think, you know, what a lot of people don't realize are the like trials and tribulations that are behind running a brand. So, what have been a couple of things that Mondelez has helped streamline for you guys to help with the growth of you? Well, what's also important is that the way they bought it was a two-step process where we're still involved. Jordan actually works for the company at least until next year, which will have been three years. Uh, oh, the wow. entire Hue team, by the way, stayed on, right? And so that's important, right? It, it wasn't just like, hey, we bought it. All you original people are out. Like everyone's still there. So that's really important. And, and the developments that you've probably seen this year are still coming from kind of us, Right, like the milk, the grass-fed milk chocolate, the no sugar added chocolate chips, which are bomb. Which I know you know. It's like my favorite product you guys have ever made. She, yes, well, she and I will say just one one little plug for your listeners. As you know, we sold out of all of them uh, a few months ago, and we just made a huge new batch, and they're already starting to sell out again. So if you want some, you have to get them before your end because they're going to sell. We can't make enough. Because the way it's we baking make, season, come on. The way we make those is really tough, uh, and it's not easy to make a lot of it. And so, like for people who care, like I just tell them, like literally, like we went months without them. Yeah. And obviously, that's not great for a business. <laughs> but for your listeners, like who like no sugar added, these are no sugar added chocolate chips that don't have stevia, monk fruit, or erythritol. They're sweetened with whole dates. They're actually keto certified. They're, I think they're the most unique thing we've ever done. They're amazing. Um, it's like what I give my kids when I make pancakes. Like when I put a, make a banana bread, I give them. They're phenomenal. So. Okay, so that was my little plug. HughKitchen.com. Sugar added chocolate chips. Um, uh, before your end, and um, they have been really helpful with certain things around strategy. The most helpful thing they've been is with production. Many of you may notice that about a year ago, Hugh switched from a plastic inner liner to now a compostable foil-ish liner. Um, I say ish because true foil is not compostable. And the quality of our chocolate went up. And this was, this was part of Mondelez's help. You know, we took so long to try to figure out how to get plastic off the chocolate, but you can't really do it 
and have a business because the chocolate will go bad like that. And so for a while, of course, we didn't want to use plastic as a sustainably minded company. And it took us a long time. But Mondelez has a facility that is, I think, one of the best, if not the best chocolate facilities in the world. And Jordan and the whole team spent a long time on basically figuring out how to transfer our process into this particular facility, which allowed us to produce even better chocolate. You'll notice that like, it's a little bit, there's like, it's less crumbly now. It's much smoother. Like creamier. It's creamier. Like everything got better. Um, And we didn't compromise on a thing. And we could not have done that without them. So that was like a big unlock for us. I love that. No, I, you were saying last year, I think that the quality of the huge chocolate, like, which I didn't think was possible, but I think it like even got better when you guys became part of Mondelez. And I it did. wholeheartedly mean that. Now, Human Co. Yeah. So on to your latest venture. So Human Co., can you give a background on exactly what it is and what yes. you guys are doing? Yeah. So we are not a fund. That's the first thing that's really important. And I don't have a problem with funds. I, I used to have a fund. I'm an investor in many funds it's sort of a like a red versus green kind of distinction. We are what's called a holding company. So we are a single company, whereas a fund takes other people's money, buys pieces of companies as investments, and then has to sell them to get paid. We are a singular company, like Mondelez is a singular company. And we are in the business of buying and building brands where we fully control them. So these are not like passive investments. These are, these are our companies. Uh, so you could think of us as kind of a very mini conglomerate where we are trying to create a platform where we could share in resources that small companies all need, right? So for example, a lot of small companies, they all have to have a CFO. They all have to have a controller. They all have to have people in sales and marketing and production and supply chain and logistics and all these things. And there's a lot of those things that could be shared across. And what we observed as we built up Hue, and I've been in this world now for you know, 13, 14 years, is that it's the same consumer. It's the same person who's eating Hue chocolate that is going to want to try against the grain pizza or is going to want to eat Cosmic Bliss. And in fact, it's the same consumer who's eating huge chocolate that also wears the Aura Ring. And a lot of these companies that are conglomerates, they don't target the same consumer, right? Like, and they're more, they're more segmented as a category, right? For example, uh, Mondelez, which owns Chips Ahoy and Oreos, and they also own Taste Cookies. Right. The people eating Chips Ahoy are probably not the same people eating taste cookies. And by the way, that's like a good, that's a great business. But for us, our goal is to make things easier for people. So we wanted to basically create a house of very trusted brands so that if you're like, Oh my God, I love what, I love what those guys did with you, but I wish I had an ice cream. Now we have an ice cream that has the same guardrails as you. And oh my God, I wish I could eat pizza that was sort of like clean. Now we have that with Against the Grain. And so the goal, and then we haven't even talked about snow days. And so we, we bought, we, we built a company from scratch. Uh, it's, a, it's my kind of second company, which is called Snow Days. And you'll notice Snow Days is the first of its kind, grain-free, gluten-free, uh, organic pizza bite with grass-fed dairy and grass-fed mozzarella and seven vegetables infused into the sauce. 
I grew up on significant junk food. And I think, and I think some of my autoimmune stuff is from how crappy I ate. And so, and, and I was so sad and I've had so many periods where I've been sad about what I can't eat. And so a lot of our MO at Human Co is to focus on only foods that bring joy, that are foods that like you make you happy. They're foods for celebration. They're foods for parties. They're foods because those are the foods that tend to be the grossest in terms of what's in them. And so we, we wanted to basically take a lot of our know-how that we had learned from Hugh and a lot of the investment stuff that I had a background in and apply it in a way where we could build a modern mission-driven holding company of all brands that everyone can now eat and not think like, oh, what's in this? Who made this? Can I trust it? And that was what was so magic about Hugh Kitchen, right? Is that when people went into our restaurant, Hugh Kitchen, it was like they were like a kid in a candy store if you were like really nervous or paranoid. You're like, oh my God, I can eat everything in here. And that was super important to us. And that's also why we just bought uh, a, a very significant stake in True Food Kitchen at Humanco. And True Food Kitchen is the largest health and wellness full service restaurant in the country. So that's what Humanco is. So we... Okay, I have two questions piggybacking off of that. The first is, well, I'll first with, start with the simple. So True Food opened in Edison at Menlo Park Mall last weekend. And we went to like the soft opening on Saturday. I think we ordered the entire menu. I mean, I've eaten there a dozen times. He is celiac. He like can't find gluten-free stuff anywhere when it comes to like a burger, pizza, etc. How many things did we order? Like it was amazing. I mean... We got the burger, we got the panini, we got pizza. Their burger's about better. Their grass fed burger is terrific. It's like really juicy. I I want to go back. Yeah, no, it was okay. It's like 15 minutes, 15 minutes from our house, which was about my parents. Yeah, about my parents, about my kids. It was such a, when I found out that Human Co., when we found out that you guys were making an investment into True Food, we're like, that's such a natural synergistic partnership that I'm excited to see what you're going to do and implement as a part of true food, because I think that there's a lot, like I just said, like there's a lot of parallels with your views on food. And like, I'm curious if you're going to change like their cooking oils or anything of like their ingredients. You want to hear the craziest thing? Yeah. So before we approached them, because it was our favorite restaurant in Austin and my, it was my wife's idea. And Jessica was like, this is amazing. Jessica, Jason, like it, it's not as strict as you, but it's much more approachable. Yeah. And but they're super, super deliberate about everything. You know, they adhere to the dirty dozen. They only do grass fed everything like they, they source from all local farms. Like it's amazing. And we found out in our diligence that they have a couple dishes that still use like some of the better seed oils like sunflower. And they were already in process. And I think it's this month they're announcing they will be the first restaurant chain with no seed oils. That's why they were doing it without us, which is amazing. And as soon as I learned that, I'm like, oh, my God, this is like, <laughs> this is meant to be. No, it's amazing. I, that's, I'm very excited to see what what is to come for them. Could, speaking of oils, could we dive a little bit into ingredients a bit? Now, you are very, very knowledgeable about different ingredients within items and like against the grain, for example, you just reversed their oil, you were telling us, where you're now putting olive oil 
it was instead of canola oil, correct? Yes. Yes. So tell us about that switch. And like, that's pretty ballsy, especially from like a cost perspective too. So what made you change the switch? And also why a little education, I'm sorry if this has to kind of like break it down a little much for you, but like, why no canola oil? Because I think there's still a lot of education to be to be taught. Yeah. So I, I, if any of your listeners Google, how do they make seed oils? Some of those are a bit sensationalized, but some of them are pretty true. And this is a very controversial topic in the nutrition world. But most modern seed oils, particularly canola oil, which is also called rapeseed oil, and it's the second ingredient in most oat milks, including Oatly, are made in a way that is similar to how they make motor oil, um, literally. And they're they're bleached, they're deodorized, there's chemical petroleum-based solvents that are used. And, And so it's not necessarily, there's a lot of talk and we don't have time to go into it, about the the fatty acid profile yeah. of those oils and how much omega-6 versus omega-3 they have, et cetera. But the simplest thing to remember is that most industrially processed anything has a lot of gross stuff that you don't want. The bleaching, the deodorizing, like like a lot of like the modern flowers are bleached and deodorized and chemically produced and all that shit stays on it. Right. And so if yeah. you do, if you do like third-party lab tests, like it shows up. If you were manually extracting like organic sunflower oil in your kitchen, right? Where you were literally like grinding up the organic sunflower seeds yourself. I don't think that's bad. And I call that kind of artisanal oils, right? But 99% of the oils out there are not done that way. And, and so there's a lot of, of, of talk uh, that's been happening about the toxicity of, of modern uh, seed oils, which include sunflower, safflower, uh, canola in particular. Um, there's a few other like less obvious ones like grapeseed, and there's a few other ones. But the, but the prime culprits are, is really canola. And then on the other hand, things like a pure olive oil, not ones that are cut with other oils, pure 100% olive oil, um, avocado oil, coconut oil um, are not processed that way, especially if they're organic. And olive oil in particular has been shown for as long as nutritionists have been measuring anything that olive oil is, is uh, beneficial for human health. And so we, we, we were looking at against the grain. It was, it was our favorite gluten-free and it's also grain-free pizza company yeah. based in Brattleboro, Vermont, no outside investors, family owned for 15 years, sourced all their ingredients from local farms. The one thing that kind of seemed odd on it was it had non-GMO canola oil which is better than regular canola oil because it's not used genetically modified uh, canola oil and doesn't have the pesticides as much and all that stuff. But one of our thoughts was, this is a pizza and bread company. We should upgrade the oil to olive oil, not just for the health reasons, but also for taste reasons. And it took us a long time to figure out how to do that because it's a decent sized company with a lot of products. Their breads, by the way, are fabulous. And we also kind of wanted to make a statement to the market and basically say like every food company, when they buy something or they, or they try to make something better over time, they cheapen the ingredients because they, you know, and, and by the way, it's not like evil, like these are businesses. They're trying to make more money. They're trying to make more margin. And we kind of wanted to take a stand and say, you know what? There should be companies that upgrade ingredients. Mm-hmm. And, and we kind of want to plant a flag and show consumers like 
this is better. This is better for you. It's better for the world. I think it tastes better. But, and this is a big but, we have to be able to convince and explain to consumers that we are now making less. And we did this for you and for, for all of us. And we really want to communicate to people like, yeah, it costs a little more, but that's okay. You know, like for the same reason, like, you know, you, you buy a slightly better car because you want to have the quality or you buy an iPhone versus some no-name phone or you buy a pair of Nikes instead of some no-name sneakers. Like quality matters. And, and I feel like in the food industry, not enough people care and talk about quality and the fact that it, it should cost more and that we're not making, you know, we're not making anywhere close to the kind of margins that like crappy pizza companies make. And so that that part is challenging and we need everyone's kind of help to understand that. But that was the move with that. And we are, Human Co. is a seed oil free company and we try to only use ingredients that are sourced from nature, that are not industrially processed ever. And we're certainly not in favor of and have never invested in something that I call techno food, um, the synthetic lab produced things that are like totally engineered by scientists and have nothing like no relation to nature. Can you give an example of like what would classify as techno food? That's a cute name. I haven't heard that label before. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of brands, Impossible, Beyond, Soylent, okay. Nugs, which is now called like Simulate Chicken. There's some of them that are unapologetic about it. And they literally try to sell themselves as a technology company. Uh, there's a whole movement in the in meats that are grown in Petri dishes right now. Yeah, and it's, you'll, it's called like cellular meat. And then there's a bunch of dairy companies that are genetically engineering and modifying molecules to produce dairy proteins without the cow. Perfect Day uh, is one of them. So when you see kind of like ice cream that says dairy, but without the cow, like you have to ask, how are you making that? I'm okay if, if you're vegan. I'm just not okay with like, it's not that I'm not okay with it. I, I'm, I'm a big fan of technology, but a lot, none of this is proven stuff. Like this is stuff that has been tested for months, not years. And the FDA has very loose policies called grass generally regarded as safe where they tested for a few months and they're like, yeah, it's fine. And then 10 years later, we're like, oh shit. And by the way, like history is, is, is replete with examples of this where, where the government thought it was fine. You know, asbestos, thalidomide, you know, glyphosate, which is Monsanto's Roundup, like trans fats, Olestra. Like I could make a list of all the times the government's like, yeah, it's safe, no problem. And then like 10 years later, they're like, oh, wait, that causes cancer and you're going to die. I just, again, take an evolutionary approach to this and say, is this something that's been around for like a long time where we know this yeah. is safe for human consumption? And if the answer is no, like, fine, I just, you know, like we don't need to do it. Yeah, I think um, when we left Exo West last year, uh, or I'm sorry, at the beginning of this year, we said everything was like either plant-based meat or plant-based uh, cheese. But I, I guess that's probably one of the food trends you're not excited about. Are there any food trends that you are excited about? You've well, I'm excited about real plants where it's like the actual fruits, the actual vegetables, and there's tons of companies doing this now. I'm a huge proponent of plant-based things if it's real plants. But don't try to like conflate and mix and try to make meats out of plants. <laughs> um, that for me, right? So 
I think we're starting to see, you saw it at Expo, we're starting to see the pendulum swing back the other way where people are like, wait a minute, what's in this? Like, is this all fake technology like stuff? And there's like a lot of keto products. When you look at the ingredients, you're like, I don't recognize a single ingredient on this thing. Yeah. Um, and so that's the kind of stuff I'm not a big fan of. The other trends, um, I think regenerative agriculture is going to be a big trend. I think grass-fed and, and sustainably raised cows. Um, I don't think that dairy is going away anytime soon. But I think there's a much, much better way to do dairy. And, and you know, just a final point on Cosmic Bliss, 97% of ice cream still sold in this country and 99% globally is still dairy with all the hype and talk about plant-based ice cream. The vast majority of that 97 is factory farm dairy. And everybody knows the horrors of factory farm dairy. The cows are abused. They're put in very confined areas. They're fed grains instead of grass, which they're not supposed to be. They're abused their whole life. It's not, you know, and a lot of people argue that any kind of meats or dairy is not humane to begin with, which is a whole separate discussion. But, you know, humans have been consuming animals since, you know, we've been hominids uh, walking on two feet. And there are better ways to do dairy. And so we created a cosmic bliss similar to what we did with Against the Grain in terms of upgrading. We created the first of its kind, 100% grass-fed, organic, clean-label ice cream. And the cows are pastured, and they're grass-fed, grass-finished. These are very healthy cows, and right. they're treated much more fairly. And then in terms of environmental, we had a life cycle analysis done by a third party. Our pints produce 27% fewer greenhouse gas emissions per pint than conventional dairy ice cream. Um, wow. But it's a lot more money to do it this way. Um, and so if we want to see as things like this, we have to be okay paying more money for better practices. Um, so I think regenerative, grass-fed is another big one. I think upcycling is going to be a big trend, reusing things that are mm -hmm. bruised or damaged. Jason Carp, you're amazing. Thank, Thank you, you so, so much, much for taking the time to chat with us. And we can't wait for the listeners to hear everything that you have to share. All right, guys. Thanks so much for having me. Thanks, Jason. Bye-bye.